0: It's so important to get real-world feedback from your actual customer demographic versus internal people who attempt to put themselves into that mindset. You aren't your customer. You're not going to find some of the key insights that are only going to be found from going external to the people that you're actually marketing this product towards who are actually going to be buying it and using it when it comes to new product introduction, beta testing is one of the best ways for you to actually get your product solution in front of and and in the hands of the people who really are going to use it.
1: In this episode, we dive into the world of innovation and relaxation with our special guest, Mike Mars. From pioneering cutting edge printers at HP, to revolutionizing the wellness industry with luxurious hot tubs at Watkins Wellness, Mike has brought a lot of groundbreaking products to market. Join us as we explore his journey across diverse industries, uncovering the secrets behind successful product launches and the transformative power of quality. Get ready for an inspiring session filled with insights and stories from Mike Mars. Let's get into it. Mike? Thank you so much for joining us on
2: the Delta Huddle Podcast. Kick us off just by talking more about what you do at Watkins um, and what NPI looks like there.
0: Watkins Wellness, so it's a company I've been at for about, I don't know, two two years, a little over two years at this point. And, and we do make spas, hot tubs, which are very relaxing. They're actually amazing products. Now, the new product delivery aspect of new spas and hot tubs isn't necessarily relaxing, right? It's, mm. it's just <laughs> as hectic and as stressful as getting out any other kind of new type of product. Basically what I'm managing from a program management perspective is a, a new product. Um, usually um, in some cases it's brand new, a brand new product line. In other cases it's uh, the next generation of, you know, a, a changing of a model year or redesign of an existing product line, uh, but taking it, uh, been working with the cross-functional team to take it from uh, design concept through um, vendor selection, qualification for tooling, to the development units, to the pre-production units, to actual production and releasing to the customer so um, it is kind of that kind of the whole kind of beginning of the life cycle piece until it's out to production of course you know i'm focused on new products so i'm not there until the grave right you know when we kind of finally put it to bed or uh, so i'm not cradle to the grave but i'm certainly cradle to production mm-hmm. uh, and all things involved with that so um, very dynamic environment, um, sitting in the hot tub is relaxing, but new product introductions definitely is not.
2: Yeah. That kind of ends up being the reward after all of this kind of, uh, toil to get it to market, right? It's like, I can finally That's sit right. back in my hot tub and relax. Um, one thing that you mentioned was, uh, kind of these cross-functional kind of environments that you're working in. And it sounds like you have a lot of different points that you need to touch on when working through the mpi process um and a lot of our recent episodes we've touched on that a lot where you know whether it's someone who's in beta testing or if they're kind of leading a new product design they need to do a lot in order to communicate with these teams and get everyone on the same page um so one thing i was interested in is you know how do you tackle kind of that cross-functional communication and how do you make it work in a way that's like okay we don't have a lot of friction and we're able to drive the progress of this product forward
0: well that's a it's a very good question and it's a very kind of nuanced and somewhat complicated answer i think i mean my style is you know i like to communicate i like to bring everyone as appropriate into the conversation um sometimes maybe i over communicate but i will do that because i want everyone to know what's going on right and Mm -hmm. i want to um kind of continue to drive home what the objectives are, stay on top of them. Um, at Watkins, we work in an environment where we have many balls in the air. So, you know, when we're looking at one particular new product introduction of say, you know, let's say four new spa models within a product line. And we have a team that's working on that. That team is also working on a number of other projects as well. So, you know, from my standpoint, if you don't consistently communicate and frequently communicate, um, they can lose focus off of that particular initiative and focus maybe on this one, right? Um, so, you know, I think frequent communication uh, is is very much needed. One of the things that I've found to be very uh, effective over the last year here is taking kind of an agile, like stand-up style approach to meetings and communication versus the one-time-a-week kind of core team meeting. We do a hybrid of those right now. Um, what we like to do is have, you know, kind of a daily stand-up type meeting for the folks that are actually doing the work, which you would see in like an agile Scrum type environment, and then maybe designate one meeting at the end of the week, let's say Fridays, um to be more inclusive of the rest of the stakeholders to allow them to come in and kind of see what's going on share their feedback and get informed. so you know that's the way we've been handling it at Watkins I found it to be effective um you know again you know I, I think you know if you don't have that communication and that um I, I guess tight coupling with the folks on the team because there are so many balls in the air, it's easy for people to get, you know, focused on something other than your project and, and maybe, you know, kind of forget to maybe take care of this or that because the focus is somewhere else. So I think it's, it's very important to have that frequent communication when you're working with these cross-functional teams.
1: So are you guys mostly uh, in office or are you hybrid or how's, how's we're,
0: that? We're, we're hybrid. So, um, certainly it depends on the role right but because we do our own manufacturing um, the folks that are in the manufacturing side need to be there every day Um, Mm -hmm. we do some of our manufacturing in Vista California which is where my where I'm based out of my home office and then we do the rest of our manufacturing which is kind of the majority of our manufacturing in Tijuana Mexico Mm -hmm. thankfully it's not too far away it's not like you know HP, where we'd have to fly to Thailand to the manufacturing yeah. center where we'd make all of our printers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice that it's it's at least somewhat local, um, but that's where the teams are. So a lot of the, you know the office types like me were very much hybrid, but we do spend time at the manufacturing locations where the work is being done, uh, whether it be in Vista or Tijuana. Earlier this year, I was spending a lot of time in Tijuana one to two days a week, uh, just down there with the team, ensuring that um, things are moving, things are happening, the projects that are prioritized are getting focused, focused on. Um, now we're, we're getting towards the tail end of, of the year and I'm more focused in Vista. So I'm gonna be spending more time in Vista. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a mixed bag right now with the office people, uh, mainly hybrid and our production people being on site.
1: Cool. And when, so I love the stand-up idea. That's like a, a normal thing, I guess, in, in Agile. What, we're not what always other standing, kind of... but we still call it a stand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've had a few at, at CenterCode where we really, like, we go stand in a circle, and we'd all Look. go talk amongst the thing, and then we'd move back to our desks. Uh, but that okay. was when we were in the office. So what, what kind of other communication? So those meetings happen. Yeah. Is there communication going out before that? Is there communication going out after that? And then what are you kind of delivering in that that end of week to your stakeholders based on all of those conversations that you you just had in your standup? You yeah sort of so a little- I
0: know. mean we're a, a, a Microsoft shop here. so we use the Microsoft suite of tools. Mm-hmm. So you know we of course use teams to instant message. So there's a lot of that going on outside of the standups or these core team meetings constantly communicating over teams. Uh, we'll also use teams to link. You know, we create a channel in teams for the specific project and in that channel, I'll link to my Microsoft OneNote, which I use to take notes in the standups, the core team meetings, uh, whatever meeting it may be. And I'll link it to a tab in the team's channel. So people can go out there, whatever they would like, grab those notes. So that's an artifact that we create, um, through these communication channels now what we're talking about here is kind of the day to day. How do we keep things moving? How do we track progress? How do we communicate out? Um, now from a kind of a wider communication to the stakeholders, what we have, um, here is a stage gate process that we use to step new products through kind of, you know, from the early stage to production, there's five stages. Um, and when we're getting, to the end of each one of those stages, we have a stage gate review where we bring in kind of all the stakeholders up to the president of the company to share out where we are from each functional area, um, update them on the risks, and then look to you know what we call a recommendation panel to give the team the go ahead to either pass that checkpoint or hold, you know, come back in a week or two to clean up these risks that we're uncomfortable with. Or if it's, you know, the case where it's a a project that just really isn't viable anymore for whatever reason, then, you know, that would be the time to decide not to work on it anymore. So uh, so that's that's a communication piece, a stakeholder uh, kind of management piece that happens outside of those stand ups and core team meetings.
2: Cool. Yeah. And I love that you guys are just so um, committed to communicating so openly like that. Um, it sounds like, you know, you're very well vertically integrated, right? You guys are handling production and all this stuff. And the amount of communication your teams are having, no pun intended, uh, seems really, really conducive to getting the product cross store and admittedly as a former Microsoft employee, hearing all that stuff about teams in OneNote is like music to my ears. So that was perfect okay. right there. Um, one thing I want to ask is you did mention this sort of stage gate process. You have these five stages and whatnot. Are you integrating feedback from teams at every single stage in this process? Or is there a point where you say, okay, now is the right time to start collecting feedback and getting a little bit more insights from the teams around us?
0: So, you know, I think what you're asking is how do we populate kind of the high level status going into these stage gate reviews, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we're, we're really managing the schedule. Um, the detailed project schedule, which right now we're using Smartsheet to manage that. So we're not using a Microsoft tool for that one, (laughs) but uh, we do manage the detailed project plan through Smartsheet. And, you know, we're, we're always looking at, at least on a weekly basis, where we are in kind of checking off all the boxes needed for that particular stage. Now, as we're getting to the end of that stage, you know, we'll bring up our PowerPoint template with um, the skate, stage gate deliverables and each one of the functional teams will own a slide in each one of those stage gates. Mm-hmm. So we will get together as a team and populate those slides together, um, with the understanding that that function really owns the content, but I think it's important that that content is not, uh, pulled together in a silo, right? We Mm -hmm. want to pull it together as a team to make sure that you know if there's any open items there, anything that we're planning on showing a yellow or a red, that we have an opportunity to try to clean that up or maybe answer any um, unknowns with that content together as a team uh, before we go into the checkpoint. So um, pulling together that content is done in a cross-functional way prior to going into the checkpoint, usually about a week before we go in, There's a couple iterations on it because usually you'll find, you know, some things in there that we want to clean up and we have time to clean up before we go into the checkpoint. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's really how we manage it. Uh, just to make sure that everyone's aligned, we're not going to be surprised our, our team, you know, the working team of any of the content that's going to be shown and another important piece of this checkpoint process is our team pulling together our recommendation on what the disposition should be going into the checkpoint. So, you know, do we think we should pass? If so, why, right? You know, it's, it's very uncommon to go into one of these checkpoints without anything being yellow, you know, but you know, if we feel like the risk is manageable, we have a path forward. We don't think that it's going to have an overall impact on the schedule you know, we'll still recommend that we pass this checkpoint to keep moving for these reasons, right? So we want to give ourselves time to formulate that disposition. And we want the whole team to be in agreement on
1: that disposition before we go into the meeting. Yeah. Are we we talking about software and hardware? Is it just mostly hardware components? We're talking mainly about hardware components when we're talking about, you know, the development
0: of these, these new spas. We certainly do have electronics, um, control boxes, control panels, new firmware, new UI that we, um, certainly are managing as well, but because we're dealing with a lot of hardware and a lot of tooling, the way that we have to manage these projects is it's very waterfall. In that, um, the requirements really need to be in place before you go spend, you know, a hundred thousand dollars on this tool, right? It's a little bit yeah. different than software development where, um, we have that flexibility to iterate kind of after we say go.
1: Yeah. I'm so, I'm so interested in this, this component of at what point does an executive or a key stakeholder get access to what would be the product? to be able to like see it and use it and try it and and, uh-huh. and give feedback on it. Cause it sounds like there's a lot of stages. We're probably dealing with very small pieces that combine to be something big. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm just wondering like when when do your, your stakeholders get to, to see a working product? A working product? So that yeah. would be our
0: first development unit. So it would be okay. like a pre-production prototype. So it would be after we completed Our tooling um to actually produce real hardware um i mean that's the most kind of real representation of what the product's going to be that um a stakeholder would get to really experience um now with spas you know a lot of the experience is actually sitting in it right and and feeling the jets you know is it is it meeting those um customer experience um goals, you know, and that's a time when something like that can be done. Uh, There are some earlier prototypes that we do that are less representative, but um, we do have a pre-production prototype in one of the later stages uh, where we really get to kind of feel it out. Uh, And then beyond that, that's when we start to prove out uh, the design of that pre-production prototype in the actual production environment and have it be built by production personnel to help us tease out any issues that we may not have been considering that may impact production you know ergonomic issues for example you know access issues um, space issues things like that that wouldn't necessarily necessarily be caught in a lab environment where that pre-production prototype is built yeah
1: definitely because i I mean there's What's interesting is like when you take a lot of software components and even some hardware, like you can 3D print a, a lot of hardware nowadays to like get mm-hmm. a feel and a look of it and you can get mockups and UI designs and you can test stuff and get feedback. seems a little bit harder in your, your case, right? Like you can get feedback, but it's all real, real conceptual, right? Like they probably won't even like people don't even may not even see what it looks like or the, like the actual UI. So I'm just. Are you? When are you bringing in those users? Because I know you guys do run beta tests. I'd seen some of that online with uh, some some dealers and and whatnot. Right. But like, is that a, is that a formal process for you guys to to include that? Is it much later because you have to get through some of those those development builds and those big prototypes?
0: It depends on the solution. You know, if mm-hmm. it's something that is going to be mm, Gosh, I'm searching for the right word here. If it's it's something beyond kind of a new, um, a new spa with basically kind of the same components that are maybe reconfigured, then we would go more of that, that beta route. Um, but you know, if it's an aesthetic change, things like, you know, the external kind of cabinetry updates, things like that. We wouldn't necessarily go to beta with a change like that. It's more okay. kind of driven by you know our design team, our our product team, and um, voice of the customer feedback that we already have. So we don't deploy beta on everything, but if you have a situation where um, it's something that's easily updatable in the field, you know, like firmware um, that is including a new um feature set, then that's something that we would deploy out into a beta environment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that I kind of wanted to touch on a little bit as well is um, sort of comparing uh, some of the experiences you've had with developing products here at Watkins uh, to your experiences at HP you know how similar is it? How different is it? Um, where can we draw that Venn diagram where they both kind of share the same, characteristics. So I'd really kind of like to dive into that a little bit as well. Like kind of what was uh, your NPI experience like at HP? What were your beta experiences at HP? All that
0: good stuff. Sure. So um, at Watkins it's it's much more manufacturing focused in that Watkins um, has its own manufacturing center. At mm-hmm. HP we outsourced our manufacturing to Um, vendors in asia right so it wasn't an hp manufacturing plant it was a new kimpo group manufacturing plant for example Mm -hmm. so a lot of the aspects related to manufacturing were managed by that that outsourced uh, vendor uh, with hp operations overseeing it here at watkins we're very much more hands-on with the operations team in that whole um, part of MPI now also at HP, we were much more software, firmware focus. I, I know Chris, you know, when, when we work together, I mean, we were often looking at, um, new updates to software, new updates to firmware, adding feature sets and a- apps, things like that, that we would want to deploy out to our beta community. Uh, there isn't as much of that here at Watkins. There's there's some of that, but there isn't as much of that. Uh, also, you know the 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 touch points that we have with our customer are a bit different. Whereas at HP, we would be looking for feedback from the end user. Um, and our products were easy to deploy and get that feedback, right? Whether we're working yeah, I mean, on like the <laughs> the the sprocket pocket printer or a new inkjet or something like that we could easily you know get a hundred of those and ship those out to customers with spas it's a lot different yeah. right um, yeah. we can't exactly go you know find people that fit a, a specific demographic and then ship them out a spa for them to try it's just not really feasible so mm-hmm. and also our main customers, at least in our specialty, um, retail side of the business are our dealers. So Mm -hmm. when we think about our customers in that context, it's really our dealers. Um, so that's who we would typically engage with when it comes to things beta. Um, they already have spas, they have many of them, and oftentimes we can tap into something that they already have on the floor to provide them, you know, a new update to you know, something software focused for them to experience and provide feedback on. So um it certainly is a very different dynamic, Watkins versus HP, in terms of um just how you would go about deploying a beta, who you'd be looking from feedback from, um, and then just like kind of the flexibility that you have and um Finding participants,
1: pulling in participants,
0: and things like that.
1: It's definitely interesting. Like, So Luke was just on a podcast. It was an IoT podcast. And he was talking about Bose. So Bose releases headphones. We'll just talk about headphones in a sense. Um, and the idea is that they had to shift their mindset away from, I'm going to ship this one product, and I'm going to start working on the next product. Because they needed to start treating a lot of their products like services. And I, I know HP was definitely in, in that that vein, right? Like I need right. to get an update in the software, this thing need, needs to be more compatible with the stuff that comes out next year and yeah. the year after. And it's, it's just interesting thinking of that, that dynamic here of this, this market is still in that state of it's not necessarily a service. It's going to be a release and we're going to start working on the next one and integrating that feedback to the next version of the product. So, yeah.
0: No, that's, that's a very good point. And that's a, an angle I wasn't necessarily thinking of, but, um, you're absolutely correct. I mean, there's less um, compa- compatibility with systems concern yeah. with the Watkins product line than there was with the HP product line. We, I mean, we do have some apps, and we want to make sure that they're compatible with all the popular OSs and versions of the OSs and things like that, but it's a very limited or more limited space than what we had at HP, where, you know, you are focused on mobile apps. Um, but you're also focused on, um, desktop software. You're also focused on network connectivity, um, wireless protocols, things like that. So it was a, it was a much, uh, bigger space that we had to kind of, I guess, oversee our compatibility with and make sure that we can function um you know well within um all of the the different elements we're going to be interacting with
1: yeah It was definitely cool when i when i first met you you were working on the the new products at hp right it wasn't just the basic printer that, that was being produced by hp so I, I saw you working on a lot of the new innovative aspects of <laughs> hp and that was always a, a draw to me hp is a very old company and like That's this good. is <laughs> they had these printers for uh, a while and yeah, seeing right. your take and the innovation and and integrating feedback at all the stages was is
0: it was eye-opening
1: to me to see uh, your interest in it and, and pushing for that those initiatives so well i think
0: yeah the, it was it's very interesting to see what hp had done then and i would assume continues to do now i mean they have this Uh, inkjet technology that kind of took the world by storm you know it it got color printers in everyone's homes uh, and you were kind of hp was living off of that for decades right but then at some point it's like okay you know there isn't this other transformative new innovation that we have to come up with You know, the new inkjet, what can we do to build on top of the existing inkjet to add more value? And that's what HP was doing with the various services and things that they were stacking on top of that solution. Things like instant ink, right? You know, the ink Mm -hmm. subscription model, which I think is a great service, by the way. so, you know, I'm constantly I think, running out of ink. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who wants to go to the store and buy new ink, right? Like right yes. now, I mean, through an instant ink pres- or subscription, you know, it's like two dollars a month and you, you you get fifty pages per month and you're never gonna run out of ink. Um sure. now it's it, it it at some point would Watkins want to um do something like that? You know, we'll see. Um but you know to your your earlier point Chris on what we would focus on at HP it's, it's those things that are new unique or different mm. of the HP solution it wouldn't just be taking this printer and giving it to people and asking them you know about the print quality because that aspect of the product wasn't new unique or different it was already a proven technology and we were very comfortable with how it worked the quality that it produced and At Watkins, we would follow that same mindset in terms of what we're going to deploy for a beta. If it's not new, unique, or different, then why, right? It doesn't necessarily need that type of insight and feedback, but when we do have solutions like that, we will deploy them in a beta environment to get those insights to help us iterate and make sure that we're really hitting that customer experience target.
1: Yeah. One thing that also stood out to me is you talked about the connection with uh, like vendors, for example. Um, I know working with like uh, Honeywell or Resideo, uh, they would have aspects of we needed to include contractors, people that would be installing these devices in people's homes. Now you can go buy a Honeywell product and install yourself, but they were they were talking about the specific aspect of getting the vendors involved as contractors in the state and collecting feedback from from them because yeah. they're the ones that had to deal with it. They're the ones that actually had to sell it. They had to, <laughs> they had to promote it on their side. Um, they had to interact with it. They had a maintenance that they had to do all of, all of that fun stuff. Are, are you guys, I, you, you mentioned it. Are you guys including the, the vendors in, in that, that level of detail or uh voice of the, the voice of the vendor, if you would. So I think, you know,
0: when you, when you mentioned that the the connection I would make there are the dealers, right? Because they would be kind of the vendor that's going to be selling and servicing the product. Yeah. Um, you know, when when a customer buys a Watkins Spa from one of our dealers, when they need support for that spa, they go to the dealer for support. The dealer is going to go out, service it. If they have an issue with the service of that spa, then they will let Watkins know. So. Mm-hmm. We do a very good job capturing voice of that customer, our dealer customer, as it relates to serviceability. We also do a great job uh, understanding what our service problems are. And through the product development uh, process, through the stages, we do look at things like service to make sure that the spas are serviceable. Uh, We do look at Quality issues that we uh, know um, exist or could potentially exist to make sure that those don't make it into the final design. So, I think Chris, to answer your question, it's yes, we do um, pull in that feedback. Uh, we just may pull it in in a different way, but it's something that's very important to consider, and it's something that we do consider.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I've talked to a lot of companies that have that. That um, I'll say middleman. Uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, and, and sometimes they focus only solely on that and not their end user. And then I have the the inverse too, of people focusing solely on the end user, but not the people that are having to sell it or install it or maintenance or service it. And, and I feel like not having both of those can can cause, cause you a headache um, if, you're, if you're not listening to them, because uh, you could just be missing a, a big bit of information on how you could um, either improve or iterate on your product.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, serviceability is a huge piece, especially in, in this business, um, because these are, uh, large investments for, for our customers, yeah. Right. And it's something that's going to be there for a very long time. Um, so you want to make sure that it can be easily serviced. Uh, there's not going to be any issues with that service. You're using high quality components, which we do. Uh, to ensure that we're going to meet that kind of warranty expectation that we have, um, and that our, our, our dealers have and our customers have. So it's absolutely very important that, that all of those things are considered when releasing something new.
2: Yeah. Um, one comment that you made earlier that I found was really interesting. I want to dig a little bit deeper into, um, more on the HP side of things was, um, the idea that you know, when we're out here testing these products, we have a wide variety of technographics and the top topography of kind of our users is very different, right? We may have some users who are on MacBooks. We might have some users who are using Android phones. You know, we may have people who are still using you know legacy Windows devices, etc. Um, so, how did you guys sort of structure recruitment and kind of bringing in users so that you could have good coverage of all these different user types? Because especially if it's a mass market printer, right? It's designed to sort of be a a one size fits all kind of product. It's like, you know, this can be plugged into many different devices, many different OSs. So how did you guys tackle that? Um, Were there any strategies that you used specifically to make sure that you had wide coverage of everyone within a beta program?
0: Yeah. I mean, the desire is to to touch on all of that, right? I mean, you would look at market share data in terms of, gosh, uh, device ownership, you know, if, if you're talking about a mobile device, what's the market share in North mm-hmm. America if that's where you're going to be testing? You know, it's huge iPhones, right? So you'd want to go majority iPhone versus Android. If you're doing something like desktop software, um, web based software, maybe if it's on the cloud, you want to make sure that you're capturing um, the right web browsers based on market share. And we would mm-hmm. look. All of that up, right? You know, Chrome is kind of by far the big one. So you'd want to make mm-hmm. sure that you're hitting a lot of Chrome, but you also want to make sure that you're hitting a lot of Safari. I um, you know I don't know who's still yeah. using, you know, Microsoft Edge or anything anymore, but there's some was, people. That would be here. me. Yeah, that's me. Are you guys using <laughs> it? I don't know. I'd never use yeah. it. Is it good now? I'm not me. Sure.
2: It's just me. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, but you know, you want to make sure that you're you're hitting all of those bases. I mean, if there's yeah you know, 10% above market share for any of those. You're going to make sure that it's accounted for um, somewhere, right? Now, at HP, we would also have a lab environment where we'd Mm -hmm. be taking all of those things into consideration as well, where we'd be testing with, you know, anything with kind of 5% above market share, and even in some cases below that, just as a sanity check to make sure there aren't any huge compatibility issues that you can catch anywhere um you certainly wouldn't want to wait for a beta test to catch you know something like oh it just doesn't work at all with firefox right that's yeah. something that you can find out internally um, but we would look at market share data um gosh what else um, we'd also work with our marketing team to look at the the various personas that we were Mm-hmm. kind of targeting this particular product offering for uh, age groups, um, income brackets, number of kids, the things that they print, uh, and then attempt to go find those people as well. I remember mm-hmm. one of the, the tougher recruits that we did, and we were working with Center code on this one, is we um, were working on the Sprocket pocket printer, which was very much geared towards teens mm-hmm. and, um, for legal reasons, you can't just go out and recruit teens, right? You yeah. have to get adults <laughs> and, yeah. but you really don't want the feedback from the adult. You want the feedback from the kids. So, uh, we had to work with center code and, and we got through it. It was, it was pretty challenging though, quite frankly, to, um, find people with kids, who were willing to provide us feedback from their kid, you know, the the adult was basically being the middle person, providing us with the insights that we needed from the target demographic. And that came from, you know, us knowing from our marketing organization who this product is really being geared for, uh, designed for, and then, you know, working with, you know, professionals like you guys to go out and find the right people to help us gain those valuable you know field insights
2: yeah absolutely and then you also mentioned that you also had at hp the lab environment right so you have kind of the control and then you have the real world were there any ever any situations where you got one result in the lab and then you would launch a beta test and then suddenly find out that it's like oh that's actually kind of they don't correlate like It doesn't match. Did that ever happen? Or was it more like one-to-one like what we see in the lab and what we see in the beta test kind of track pretty well with each other?
0: It's a good question. So I think, you know, from a customer experience standpoint, there would be cases where we maybe thought something was good in the lab or even bad in the lab that didn't necessarily turn out that way in the field. Mm -hmm. Now, when, when you're talking about like a hard failure, a hard defect type of situation those would usually match one-to-one. You know, if it just doesn't work with this or that, it's not going to work with that in the lab environment or in the field. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, a point that that I want to make is that it's so important to get real-world feedback from your actual customer demographic versus internal people who attempt to put themselves into that mindset. And I think we've all kind of seen that where, you know, and I would see it at HP where, you know, I remember there was this one and I forget what they were testing, but there was a group at HP, a particular team that wanted to do kind of a customer experience workshop where, you know, it's a team of kind of middle-aged people. And, you know, this person was going to put themselves in the mindset of a, a 15 year old girl and this one was going to put themselves into the mindset of a 30 year soccer mom. And then this one was going to be that one. I mean, kind of this role playing type (laughs) situation where, where they were using our products in this kind of mindset that they were creating for themselves and then providing us feedback based on how they think that particular persona would react, which. I think does not have a lot of value, right? Um, Something that I think is very important for everyone to understand in new product development is that you guys working on this aren't your customer. You know, sometimes you may be, but oftentimes you're not. And as much as you want to try to put your customer hat on, and it's try to do it. I mean, it's absolutely valuable. You're going to find. You're going to get value from it but you're not them Um, as much as you want to you know role play and everything else you're not them Um, you're going to find some good stuff internally but you're not going to find some of the key insights that are only going to be found from going external to the people that you're actually marketing this product towards who are actually going to be buying it and using it um so I think you know that's something very important for everyone to think about when it comes to new product introduction, beta testing, things like that. And if beta testing is one of the best ways for you to actually get your product solution in front of and, and in the hands of the people who really are going to use it and provide you feedback from their perspective without role playing yeah. uh, what they think the experience is, which may provide you with information that, you know what, that thing that you thought was a big deal, no one even cares about it. You know, maybe in terms of priorities, you know, you thought that that was the number one priority issue that you had, you know, your whole software team focused on. Maybe it turns out that it doesn't even matter all that much. Maybe it's this other thing that matters. Right. Um, or the other way around. Um, so, you know, I think it's very important that, that people understand that, you know, you are not your target customer. Um, your target customer is your target customer. And it's extremely important to get feedback from them rather than um, your internal working team or stakeholders.
1: Yeah. One one way I'll, f- I'll phrase it is your employees are not a substitute for your mm-hmm. customers or your users. Absolutely. Um, I was just at lunch Yesterday, actually, uh, won't make any sense in the podcasts, But I was at lunch re- recently with one of my old coworkers from from WD, and we were talking about dog fooding a little bit. And dog fooding always has this, um, I'd say, like this lens. People are saying, "Well, dog fooding feedback is biased, right? It's either like maybe they're really excited about the product, or they're really pissed off about the product, right?" So, like, we do testing and we get feedback from an HR person who like failed miserably ran into every problem known and gave it like a 10 net promoter score. Like this thing rocks five stars. It's like you had the worst problems. Like this did not work sure. for you, but it, it yeah. skewed in one direction. And then we had engineers who just had these minor complaints about everything, two stars, right? Not, not a good product. And what I, what I was kind of trying to, I was communicating with them just having been now around the bend and in, in, inside this a bit is that Dogfooding has been twisted and turned into what is now like feedback collection
0: yeah. um,
1: versus what its intent was for was product adoption and product awareness, right? You you give your products to your employees so they can learn it, um, so they can adopt it and use it because you that's what you really want is them to adopt. <coughs> um, and then you want some feedback from them, but that's not all you want. You don't want just feedback and you can't substitute that for what would be beta testing because you still need that end user feedback so i i right and agree trying on to, your point <laughs> and trying to implement
0: some kind of product review rating score based on the dog yeah. experience exercise that would actually inform design decisions that are going to be made right it's more yeah. guys this is what we're working on this is what we're delivering use it yeah. You know, if there's some glaring, you know, huge issue, you know, is like you know, thinking of it from like a scrum standpoint that you know the product owner should know about. If we're really missing the mark here, uh, let's bring it up, you know, so we can pivot and correct it. But you know, to kind of put it out there to all these folks and do net promoter scores and star reviews and 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 to come out of it thinking that oh my gosh. Based on this dog fooding experiment, we only have a two star product. Yeah. We need to just cancel it immediately. Thing. Yeah. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> Is not the right
1: way to approach it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And sad to say, because it's so powerful in that the other aspect of a marketer, um, a good sales strategist, someone that's like a, a management support team, having access to that product before it goes out the door. It's uh, incredibly valuable. They will be able to do their job so much better because they understand what the product is and have used it already rather than need to do it on the fly, right? Like while it's live. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So.
2: Yeah. Uh, One thing I'd like to tie that into is um, I think dogfooding is very good for transparency within an organization though because you can get some of those differing voices that maybe wouldn't always use the product and you can get some kind of interesting ideas like maybe someone from marketing does have a really good idea for a feature that you could integrate and, you know, that's not going to, factor into like an NPS score, but you could say, oh, you know, that's kind of a interesting thing that we could take maybe the next generation of the product or try to integrate it now before it gets to release. Um, so I, this is kind of a question for both of you guys, you know, how does dog fooding really kind of help that transparency and how can it help break down some of those silos in interesting ways? Okay. And
0: I'll start with you, Mike. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think you, you made a good point right there just letting people experience it um get hands-on with it because it really helps you understand what you're going to be delivering to the customer i mean kind of without that it's a bit of a black hole you Mm -hmm. know and it doesn't matter what position you're in in the company whether you're the president or the the product manager i mean you kind of want to know what you're um going to be delivering and There's no real way to do that without getting into some dog fooding. Um, So I think it's very important. And I like the example that you brought up, you know, with a marketing person trying it out and discovering, you know, it would really be great if we could do this. Um, If I could go from here to here, because that's a feature I would like to access. Now, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily... That that needs to be part of the the now MVP that needs to be there for launch, but it's certainly something that can be developed and put in the backlog to be prioritized for a future sprint uh, to pull into the product set as you guys continue to iterate and update. So yeah, I think it's it's hugely beneficial to dog food to dog food the solution um, versus just looking at something like wireframes of a UI and attempting to understand how that's going to interact um, with you as a customer, when you actually pick it up and use it, because it's just not the same experience. You're not really going to get a true understanding of what you're delivering, doing it that way. So for those reasons, I think it's hugely important to let people get hands on with what they're going to be delivering to the customer.
1: Yeah. They have a, they have a different context. Like I, I just, I wrote this in uh, a subreddit the other day It was on product management. Um, and the complaint was like, when do you include legal in product development? Because they're gonna have to see something. A lot of products have, whether that's information or access or risks or all this stuff. And w- one thing that stood out to me in that was that like, we've we've had legal at, at when I was working at WD, we'd have legal in our beta tests. They were, they were actually great testers because they had a, a, a specific context that they were looking for as they were uh, going through the product. Now their feedback, again, if the, the the moment they say, I think the user will do this or complain about this, it's like, oh, there's they're putting a, a, a biased lens on. But when they're going back and say, oh, we have to go do this stuff, like these, these things need to be in order before we go out, right? Or if I'm talking to a, a sales leader that's in a specific region, say they're APAC, or say they're in, in Europe and they can add context, of like, oh, you know, my region doesn't, we don't use this or don't have access to this thing. And it might be context that that team that was developing just may not have thought of, right? Because we are humans and we miss things. So having access to more smart people is a, is usually a, a good thing as long as you channel it in the right direction and give them good, transparent instructions about what you expect for them and what, you, what you'd like for them to do. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, so if you have a, a product offering that, has legal implications, you know, that could potentially um, you know, make you have to pull a feature, add a feature, something like that. I would recommend you get them involved sooner rather than later <laughs> to make sure that you identify <laughs> those things before you get way too far down the road. Uh I'm curious, Chris, what were the kind of things at WD that legal would be looking at in beta?
1: A lot of it is the the dated storage data wiping formatting clearing off stuff um even making some recommendations with like uh, just personalization that would come through it's it's stuff that we would need to have included in various aspects same thing with like privacy policies where's your data being used and stored so like understanding what systems is going to, like a product manager may not know that, oh yeah, I gotta have this, all of this stuff outlined in my privacy policy of where the data is going to, cause it's gotta go to this new engine that's on a different uh, a different server and to this next thing. So like there's, there's those are ones that I've, I saw, uh, especially like uh, end user license agreements and where those were placed and whether or not you have it checked first versus they they checked or they opt out like those are all things that they would bring to consideration especially because laws change pretty dang frequently especially in the tech space yeah the
0: privacy space yeah for sure yeah
2: yeah absolutely um, yeah Um, cool. those are some great insights you guys are leaving me speechless here so <laughs> um, I think sort of starting to wind things down just a little bit. Uh, Mike, I wanted to ask you if you actually remember kind of the first beta program or the first pilot program that you ever ran um, and what are some big lessons that you took away from that? You know, what, what what are the things that you really learned that helped shape kind of the trajectory of your career uh, since ah, then?
0: What a great question. I gotta really tap into the memory banks <laughs> to go, go back to the first <laughs> one. So I can... Boy. So... You know, I'm going to think about <clears throat> pre-center code and then maybe post-center code. So yeah, pre-center code, um, they were more unstructured, I would say, in terms of the, the insights that were delivered and the clarity at which the insights were delivered. Um, mm-hmm. we were working with a vendor, um, that would help us find folks, um, I don't think that they were, were all that great at it um, and they certainly didn't help us process the feedback to deliver any insights. Mm-hmm. Um, so the method at which we would go about executing was very similar in that um, we would go out to customer sites, I would go, um, we would present the customer with the solution that we wanted them to evaluate. We would be there to record them setting up the product if they ran into any pain points, um, kind of capturing that feedback without leading, right, and um, kind of letting them figure it out. You know, you do your, you know, 10 plus participants, you have your notes from those sessions, you bring them back, and then you basically process the data and then come up with a presentation to share out um that's the way we did it pre center code now post center code it was it was great and i was glad that we found you guys and that um i think you guys did a much better job helping us find the right participants and then you guys just do do an excellent job through your beta bound software in capturing the insights and then pulling together those in a in a format that's easily digestible by anyone, right? So um, once we got involved with you guys, we kind of got rid of that other vendor once we found you guys and started to work with you guys um, just exclusively, um, it was just a major change for our program. Um, Not only would we get those insights from our customer visits, which I know is a little bit of a different approach from at least what you guys were doing at that time. But we would have those participants in the beta mallet system using those tools to provide the feedback at which the the platform would aggregate and then pull into these reports. So something that we didn't have to do, um, asking the great questions, you know, like NPS. And I think we did, didn't we do different types of NPS? I can't recall if there was just one NPS or there may have been um some different variants of MPS. I can't remember exactly. Uh, but there that was, was a great a
1: couple variants.
0: Yeah, I think there was a couple of variants. That was a great addition. Um and then we got more comfortable doing the kind of just deploying it without the customer visits and having more of a longer term um test cycle, which would involve us deploying um firmware updates to those customers, asking them to um, maybe retry something that wasn't working before to provide feedback as to whether or not it was actually solving the problem that they had highlighted to us. Um, and just having that platform to interact with those uh, those testers was great. Um, it was it was way above and beyond what we had been doing before, and I know we eventually did we get our own beta bound license and our own community versus gonna you know, having you guys manage the testing for us, which I, 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 hope HP continues to do today. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of, I think it was working what we started with, um, but not as well. Right. I think once I got introduced to you guys, I, I saw a better way of doing things and you guys provided that through you know your expertise in recruiting and your software tools and once we got on board with um CenterCode and what was happening with you guys I think we were in a much better place.
2: Yeah, always puts a smile on my face when someone says that at our company there was the pre CenterCode era and then there was like the post CenterCode era. That really was yeah, The post center code era always seems to be much more sunshine and rainbows than everything it, that came before. So,
0: well, there, yes, there, there's that. But I also want us to, to, to just say yeah. being part of the center code kind of family, if you will, all, also opens up lots of avenues for insights and collaboration with other people in the center code family. Yeah. You know, you guys host great events, networking events um your annual conferences that you would have where people would come in from various industries and present uh their experiences with beta tests um what they were working on with you guys having the center code folks come out and share the new features that were coming and it was just a great collaborative experience i i remember there was someone who was working on like um a software platform to write movie scripts who is sharing yeah. their insights? Um, gosh, um, I mean, just so many, just different industries. People from T-Mobile, kind of working with you guys to, you know, test out whatever solutions they were deploying. But it was just a very diverse set of companies and people working within these companies. You had the opportunity to interact with and learn from, which I think you know benefits everybody who's part of that. Uh, versus kind of trying to build something on your own, um, trying to reinvent the wheel that does not need to be reinvented. And then, you know, getting not as as effective of of results or outcomes, and then not having those collaborative kind of networking opportunities. So, you know, I've always been a a big proponent of code and you guys and what you do. And, um, you know, I'd always, I would encourage anyone who's, working in beta or thinking about working in beta to engage with center code and, and work with you guys to, you know, kind of figure out the right path for them and their business.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Ringing endorsement there. I don't think I could have have said it better myself. And I think that's been one of the advantages of the podcast is that kind of in the more remote era, we are able to bring in a lot of really kind of diverse voices and different industries and stuff like that. Like, uh, Pete, who you mentioned. He was a podcast guest not too long ago and he had some Good. amazing kind of insights to share and that was still sort of in the midst of the uh the writer's strike and everything oh, so wow uh, it was yeah. really cool hearing him talk about that and kind of share that's <laughs> a, a little bit of what he was going through but also like how do we integrate all this stuff and who are all the different people that we work with because in his environment he's not just working with screenwriters he's also working on the payroll side of things so he was also talking yeah. about Look, we need to work with the people who are in lighting, you know, who are in post-production, who are in hair and makeup, et cetera. So I think that's been one of the really cool things we've been able to do with the podcast is kind of have the same vibe of like, you know, well, we can't always do a, a an on-site big conference, but we can bring in so many different people and, you know, really share that, um, that knowledge uh, across a, a really wide network. And so um yep. we're tackling that and i think chris you still have some ideas for some other in-person events that we want to do in the future right we're trying to kick that back up again yeah
1: they're <laughs> back yeah we're, they're we're, back we're trying to do at least quarterly <laughs> trying to get maybe to a monthly cadence <laughs> at least trying an event whether <laughs> hosting going to it or sponsoring one just yeah trying to get everyone connected again because uh, the pandemic definitely uh, spread everybody out and uh, yeah. kind of cut off some some a little bit of lines <laughs> yeah
2: So, um, last question I want to ask for you, Mike, um, just what's some advice that you'd give to kind of your younger self, you know, whether it has to do with beta or MPI or just, you know, in general, what would you tell you, you know, at the start of all this?
0: Gosh, it's a great question. I think have an open mind, um, and you don't know what you don't know right is is you know go out and seek um feedback see answers um don't go at it alone and and when i say alone i i mean just from an individual standpoint you know of course but also from a, a team standpoint don't have your team go at it alone um don't be afraid to partner with people um make sure that you go out and capture feedback from your target users um it's just it's so very important to do that i know that you know as i mentioned before you know you'll have these internal teams who want to role play and things like that and you will get some valuable feedback that way but again your internal folks are not your target customer you need to make sure that you go out and seek that feedback from the right people whether you do it with a company like center code or not you need to go out there and and try to discover the things that you and your internal team have not thought of yet um, it'll help you kind of uncover um, the unknowns and also help you understand what your customer cares about and what they don't care about which is very important in terms of prioritization and managing workload not everything can be the highest priority item Um, but you know when you're just deciding what those things are from an internal view um, you can get focused on the right things i mean sometimes it's very obvious right but in other times it's not and understanding what your customers do care about and what they don't care about is extremely important when you're trying to manage a workload and a schedule and prioritize, you know, what your team should really spend its time on. Because um, I know at least, you know, at Watkins, you know, where we have many balls in the air at any given time that deciding what we don't work on is just as important as deciding what we do work on. And getting that feedback from your kind of real customers will help you uh, make a better informed decision as to what you do work on versus don't work on. So, um, you know, to telling my younger self, it would just be like, you know what, um, be vulnerable. Um, show your vulnerability. You don't, you don't know everything. Your team doesn't know everything. Um, go out and and get that help, get that feedback. Um, because that's going to, at the end of the day, enable you and the company to build better products and enable, um, your success. So, you know, don't be afraid to ask and, and, uh, just, just have an open mind. Yeah.
2: Some wise words to end on there. So, uh, Mike, thank you for coming on the show.
1: It was a pleasure having you. Thanks for tuning in. You can find us on any of your favorite platforms for watching podcasts.